All right. Why don't you turn to Revelation chapter 2, please? Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 through 17, and the message is entitled, The Worldly Church, Pergamos. Jesus addressed Ephesus, the loveless church, and Smyrna, the suffering church, and now the third, the worldly church, Pergamos. Worldliness has nothing to do with the money you have or the material possessions you have or even that you work at a secular job. But it's a condition of a heart being attracted to be one with the falling world system by one who calls himself a Christian. Jesus said several important things, as you know, about discipleship. He says that we are the salt of the earth in Matthew 5.31. Salt is supposed to cause people to thirst. We're the light of the world in Matthew 5.14. And uh, light dispels darkness. And that we are to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them in Ephesians 5.11. That doesn't mean that we think we're better. That doesn't mean that we're self-righteous. It means that we know that there's been a difference and a change in our life compared to what we used to walk in the world and now in Christ Jesus. And our hearts should go out to those who are lost because we know we've been lost. And therefore, our motivation is not self-righteousness, but compassion that they might come to Christ. These messages, as we have stated, apply to all today. Not merely to the churches in John's day. Uh, and the messages of these seven churches um, uh, represent um, uh, four things as we repeated and will do so to the end. Uh, a local church in John's day, every one of these. Uh, a period of history which we give to you to occupy the prophetic period of history. And a type of congregation that can exist between uh, or throughout the church age um, uh, from its birth to the time the Lord comes back, but also a type of Christian in their own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So we each can take an exam to see what kind of church are we, what kind of Christian are we as we move through these churches. And of course, you also have the pattern of the seven churches that is found consistently, except for two, they don't have no uh, condemnation, Smyrna and Philadelphia. But the rest fall in the category of proclamation, commendation, condemnation, exhortation, and application. And this is well known throughout uh, the pulpits of America. They read any sort of uh, historical writings and all. This is just a common uh, um, five points that are put through, and they match up really good for us. Now, again, all the letters are written within a historical background, the real reality of their day, uh, what was going on, what they were, so that this way the words that Jesus addressed to each church is very specific and is very relevant to the place they're at in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this is in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? has nothing else to do, but the church belongs to him. They're his people. So let's begin with some historical uh, information about Pergamos. Uh, the city of Pergamos, first of all, was uh, the greatest city in Asia, in the capital for 400 years, and her name means exalted or elevated. So right off the bat, exalted, elevated. When we think of that as Christians, we feel we sense pride, we sense self-sufficiency and all of that. And as we look to the church, certainly this is part of it. Now, in the year 282 B.C., it was the capital of the Seleucid kingdom that had come about by the four generals of Alexander, if you remember. He broke up his kingdom. And... Um, um, 
God used history, literal things, and he identifies with, with the areas of history. Uh, later in 133 B.C., the third king of Pergamos, willed his kingdom to Rome, as you know, at his death, and it remained the capital till the close of the first century. So it's a very important city, and the city was um, located about 10 to 15 miles from the Aegean Sea. Aegean Sea is real beautiful. Uh, 60 miles north of Smyrna and 75 miles north of Ephesus, modern-day Pergama. Some of you um, have gone to Israel with us. Uh, we did a tour through the seven churches, and uh, uh, Ephesus is the most intact. The others are mainly just locations. But um, that whole area uh, was very common to the church because that's where the gospel had been spread. Now, the city was built on a 1,000-foot high hill around the great Acropolis in the valley, valley of the river um, Caicos, uh, viewing the Mediterranean from a long distance. And the city was one of wealth and fashion, and wealth and fashion kind of go together no matter where you go in the world. You know, it's a, the world's always looking to have the latest and the best and, and fashion, the clothes, the material, how much it costs. Um, and, but not in the sense of, of um, being wealthy and fashion sort of like Ephesus or Smyrna, but it was known for its learning, especially medicine. Oh, that was a big deal. The city had a library of 200,000 parchment rolls, a quite sizable library, second to the size unique of the Library of Alexandria, which later Mark Anthony gave to Cleopatra. Um, it was famous for its parchments in spite of it being a commercial city. And many centuries they had used papyrus in Egypt, and as you know, they grew on the Nile and and it was used for writing material, and you would get the little leaves, and you intertwine them like weave them together. You get a mallet, a hammer, and you, and you hammer them together, and it makes a parchment. But the only thing with parchment is it becomes real brittle, so it's very hard to preserve. Um, in the third century, King Eumenes II of Pergamos wanted to make a library uh, of Pergamos supreme, so he persuaded. Aristophanes of uh, Byzantinium, uh, the librarian of Alexandria, to come to Pergamos. Nothing's changed, right? Um, you know, Microsoft goes to Apple, this, that, whatever, try to get the best, and they're negotiating, they're trying to rip people off from this so they can have all the experts. Nothing new. Nothing new under the sun. And the king of Egypt, Ptolemy, being enraged, imprisoned, Aristophanes and um, placed an embargo on the exports of papyrus and Pergamos. So once again, the political agendas, the powers that be, they, uh, they, they punish, they, 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 they pressure, they do whatever. Nothing new. The embargo forced the king of Pergamos to develop vellum or parchment material from animal skins to substitute papyrus. So the very embargo pressured him to develop, and animal skins receive a dye much more, and they preserve much longer. So again, you have the developmental progression of uh, writing material. The word parchment is derived from the name pergamum. Pergamum is a, neuter, a neuter of pergamos, the feminine. So the message of the church is rightly called pergamos in the feminine because the church is the bride of Christ. Now, 
The Church of Pergamos, as we're going to see his address, and the Church of Pergamos, like Smyrna, is believed to have started from Paul's missionary journey at Ephesus. We're not sure completely, but certainly there's a good possibility. It occupies the period of 313 to 600 A.D., so about 300 years, a long period of time. And during this time, after the death of Diocletian and Galerius, Constantine Maximus, or, or Maxentius, um, contended for the throne. And uh, Constantine was supposed to have seen a, a vision in the sky of a cross in heaven and a voice saying, take and conquer, uh, being told that it was a sign of the Christian religion. He thought God was calling him to be the conqueror and the leader of the Christian religion and Christians and of Christ. How convenient. Uh, very subjective, right? Self-appointed. And he called the bishops and explained their, to explain their faith, and he accepted it and appointed himself promoter and protector of Christianity. And here's where you have the biggest problem beginning. Because he's going to marry the church to the world and make it a state religion and kill it. He makes it a religion. Interesting, they just suggested just about two weeks ago that they want to make church attendance compulsory and, uh, by our politicians. They said that, really. You see, when you make that compulsory, then you neutralize Christ. You kill it. It happened in Germany through Luther. It'll happen. It happened in England. It'll happen here. Remember that prior to this time, six million Christians had been martyred in the period of Smyrna from 100 to 312, which is about 200 years, six million. So, you know, we always hear about the six million Jews, and rightly so, and we should never forget that. But the amount of Christians that have been killed and are being killed right now, right now it's open season on Christians all over the world. You just heard about the Christians being thrown overboard. Just because they were Christian in Syria, in uh, Iran, uh, in um, uh, Iraq, everywhere. Okay? And so uh, nothing new is just coming around again. Constantine stopped persecution and bestowed favor and honors on the bishops. So they sat on thrones with the noble empire of Rome now. Many of them gave up the truth of the second coming. And began to profess that they had been wrong and that Constantine's empire was the kingdom of Christ. How interesting. Well, you know, the doctrine of the Catholic Church is Chileism, the millennial kingdom, a thousand years. That they would reign as a vicar of Christ for a thousand years and Christ would return. But after a thousand years, it didn't happen. So they had to kind of work around it, right? Interesting. Whenever a person loses sight of the Lord's second coming... And in particular, a church. You will have a compromising world attitude. And some of you perhaps are straddling the fence in the world and the church. You come, and I commend you for that. And you open your Bible and you say, Amen. But where are you at during the week in terms of your attitude and your lifestyle and your decisions you're making? If you're compromising with the world, then this is your message. This is the type of Christian you are. And you need to pay heed to what Jesus would tell you this morning. Then there's the religion of Pergamos. The city was known for its many religions that held the title of the temple keepers of Asia for their devotion to once again 
emperor worship. In 29 BC, the city had the only provincial temple of the imperial called in Asia in honor of Caesar Augustus. The temples of Zeus, Athena, Dionysius, Escalapius, or Escalapius, whichever we want to pronounce it, they were some of the um, many gods which um, help us understand why they dwell in Satan's throne here in the message. Escalapius, as you know, the god of medicine, worship in the form of a serpent. One famous title was the Escalapius Soter, or Savior. What a, com- what a counterfeit, huh? The temples were um, close to the best things of hospitals, filled with serpents. Individuals would lay on the ground, and uh, some would be healed, they said. Others would die. Many of the coins and pergamas bore the serpent's emblem. Many came to be healed, and one of the famous physicians named Gallen was a native of Pergamos. Uh, today, you find the serpent emblem again in the medical community. It doesn't come from Moses and the serpent in the wilderness, but from Escalapius. This is the church that married comfort, riches of the world, in order to be exalted Trusting the arm of flesh, thereby becoming insensate to the things of God, becoming spiritually deaf and blind. And there are a lot of people like that today. I challenge you to examine who you are, where you fellowship, what is being taught, what is being compromised, both from your lifestyle and from the pulpit. This was the historical information about Pergamos. Now, having this background, we're going to better understand why it is that Jesus says the things that he says to the church. In verse 12, you have the proclamation. Notice the identity of the recipient of the letter, again, is the angel of Pergamos. Angel, again, the messenger, talking about the pastor, the minister, not an angel, literally. The context, again, determines that. And the word Ecclesia, again, called out of the world, out of darkness, the marvelous light, 115 times appears in the New Testament, uh, the people are the church of Jesus Christ, not buildings. And the name Pergamos, again, means height or elevation from the root word tower. So some have translated it fortress or citadel. Once again, thinking of that, you're thinking of being um, unpenetrable, unconquerable. You know, you're depending on your own might. Notice the identity of the writer, again, is Jesus Christ. The words are of Jesus Christ, not of John. These things says, it goes back from chapter uh, 1, verse 16. The chain of command is God, the Son, John, or the angel, then John, then us, in chapter 1, verse 1. The blessing is to those who read the revelation, all of it, chapter 1, verse 3. The message uh, is sent to all the churches in chapter 1, verse 11. Not just the seven, but all the book. And the division, again, in chapter 1, verse 19, you cannot miss it. It's divided into three divisions. The things that they saw, the glorified Christ in chapter 1. The things that are the church age, 2 and 3. The things hereafter, Matatelta, verse chapter 4, on to 19. 4 and 5, the church is raptured to heaven. Chapter 6, the tribulation begins. Chapter 19, Jesus returns with his church to set up the kingdom, the battle of Armageddon. It's a real easy division, and God gave it to us because he knew we would mess it up. The identity is once again fitting. Notice our Lord identifies himself to Pergamos as he who has a sharp two-edged sword. So it's very appropriate. The word of God is symbolized of many things. A Bible is the word of God, the bread, 
water, milk, meat, and a sword. So many different things. And here the word for sword speaks of a weapon of large size. It describes the thrashing javelin or the kind of large sword accustomed to worn over the right shoulder. But for certain it was for judgment. Rome bore the right of the sword. Eus gladi, the power of life and death. You didn't mess with Rome. The sword speaks of judgment for the worldly person in the church and the non-believer. Seven times the word appears in the New Testament. Six are found here in the book of Revelation. 116, 212, 216, 68, 1915, and 21. The seventh time when um, Simeon told Mary that a sword would pierce her heart through as she was presenting Jesus at the temple in Luke 2.35. Judgment would fall on him for us. There is another word for sword in the New Testament. It's a word, makaria. It's a short sword, a dagger sword. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. Piercing the son of the soul and the spirit. In Ephesians 6.17, for the sword, that's just the armor, defensive, that defends us and protects us. Isaiah 49.2 says, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword, speaking of Christ. Chapter 19, he returns to fight the battle of Armageddon. From his mouth goes forth a sharp two-edged sword. Judgment. The way to avert judgment is to be a doer of the word of God, not deceiving ourselves, James 1.22 says. Now, the simple teaching of Scripture is that once we are born again, we are to separate ourselves from the world. 1 Corinthians 6 9 through 11, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Come out from among them. I will be but my, your God, you'll be my children. Um, light and darkness don't have the same uh, place of location. We used to be in darkness and God called us out. Doesn't mean you're better than anybody. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you're a sinner. It means you live different. You know the difference because you've come to Christ. The word sanctification simply means to be put aside, to be separated. We get the word holy and saint from it. Jesus said in John seventeen fifteen, Father, don't take them out of the world, but keep them, in the, keep them from the evil. And we're always praying, Lord, take us out of this world. He says, Father, don't take them out of the world. <laughs> he wants to use you. He wants to use me. Jesus prayed, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. John seventeen seventeen. The word is what's going to set you apart. Okay, if you're not in the word of God, you're going to blend with the world. One of the greatest heartbreaks of my life at this point is to see people who have walked with God for so many years and they've raised their children in the church and they've been a model and they've been like a lighthouse. And all of a sudden the children now come of age and their children deviate the compromise of Christianity and the parents follow. Parents, I rebuke you if you do that. You're to be a lighthouse to your children. Ever fixed. That if they're lost, that they would always be able to look back at home and see that light. I, I don't understand parents today. Paul declared that we're to present our body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service. Not fashioning ourselves as a world system, being transformed, metamorphosed by the renewing of our mind to prove what is a good, acceptable, perfect will of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. God help us. 
We're to be holy because he is holy, First Peter 1.16 says. Paul says, for this is the will of God, even in sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessels in sanctification and honor. First Thessalonians 4, 4 through 5. You see, sex and idols go like peanut butter and jam. They're one. When a woman or a girl idolizes a man, she willingly sacrifices her purity thinking that he is worthy of her. Idolatry and sex go together. It has never changed. It never will. This is the proclamation of Pergamos. Notice, secondly, comes a commendation. Verse 13. Jesus knew that they were doing what they were doing and what they had done in the past. Nothing new. The word know, again, intellectual knowledge, understand, to perceive, as in the first two churches, he knows everything. He's walking in the midst of the churches. The word works again refers to that which they were occupied in undertaking, what they were doing. And works are the outcome of salvation, not the process for salvation, as we saw in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We're saved by grace through faith. Once we, when before the Lord, we don't use works to be saved. But once we're saved, then there has to be some works that relate to Christ, right? Simple. Now, Notice in verse 13, Jesus knew where they dwelt. The word dwell means to settle down or in dwelling to a fixed place. So now he's addressing those who are supposed to be his and were his at one time. Now they're fixed in the world system. Something's happened. The word is used of Christ dwelling in the heart of, of the believer by faith in Ephesians 3.17 and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us in James 4.5. Notice... The dwelling of the Christians is temporary here. We're sojourners, we're pilgrims. We have a permanent abode with God beginning here. But it's a very temporal place here. I don't know if you've looked in the mirror. The last time you looked in the mirror. You're no spring chicken, some of you. Nor am I. Okay? You didn't get there instantly. It's a process, a very slow process. But the longer you're going down, the faster it seems it goes. Jesus knew the place they dwelt. Listen, it was Satan's throne. Look at verse 13. Underline that. Satan's throne. The period of church history, 313 to 600 AD. We already saw Satan's synagogue in Smyrna. 100 to 312. Now it's his throne. That's where he dwells, in the church. And we're going to see him more in the other churches. He has now established his throne, his stronghold in the midst of the church. Caesar worship was followed passionately. The city boasted of being the official temple sweeper of Caesar's temple. Rome had no problem. It was so vast. It needed some common bond to unite the kingdom. And what better than Caesar worship? Today the world is becoming united as one with the greenhouse. And non-judgmental PC. Peanut butter and jelly. In a couple of months, we're going to hear from these uh, Supreme Court judges whether they're going to make a ruling on marriage, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. It's going to affect the Christian. Christian persecution will continue on. It will increase to the end. Once a year again, they burn the pinch of incense. Then they can do whatever they want. If not, they will be killed or imprisoned. Christians couldn't do it. We've seen that before. Now, 
on the last studies. Now, after that, I get to do whatever you want. But the Christians wouldn't do it. Now, two of the main gods were Escalapius, the snake god uh, of healing, and Bacchus, the god of uh, revelry or partying. And we mentioned that already. And this is still the practice today uh, in many different ways. You know, spring break and everybody drinks. And, and the ones that I, 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 the girls are the worst in drinking today. I mean, when they get to be 30, 35 and their mommies and the things going to happen in their bodies, I am amazed. The altar of Zeus was elevated 800 feet from the plain below, visible for miles. You always want to be known for your strength, your religiosity, and your fame. Yeah, they show Brazil where they show the Christos, you know, all the way around. Amazing. Then they have Mardi Gras. Carnival. Wow. Later we'll see the depths of Satan will be found in the Jezebel's teaching in the next church, Thyatira, Revelation 2.24. It's progressive. We must understand a throne from the perspective of power and authority to act. Men love to control, to destroy, to tell you what you should do, what you can't do. That was the greatest thing about America. Freedom. To live your life as you wanted to, but we're seeing a constraint coming down to a bottleneck more and more. Remember, Constantine had joined the church and made her a state church, killing it. This was the worst thing that could ever happen or can happen to any church. Satan tried to destroy the church through persecution, but it grew. So Satan married the church to the world through enticement, defiling her infecting her and polluting her to lose her witness. And this is what happens to you when you become worldly as a Christian. You lose your witness to everyone around you. You contradict, you destroy your own children and everyone you've told Christ about. You need to understand that. The high priest of Adelaide III in 133 B.C. when the kingdom was given to Rome had this title. You ready for it? Chief Bridge Builder. What's some of the jargon across America's pulpits today? I'm a bridge builder. <laughs> wow. It meant the one who spans the gap between mortals and Satan and his hosts. In Latin, the title was Pontifus Maximus. Constantine, as he declared himself head of the church and defender and protector of Christianity, sat on the golden throne. And bore the title of Vicar, which is the same title, Pontifus Maximus, the very same one that the Pope bears today, bridge builder. And his little hat is related to Dagon the fish god. Doesn't look like that when you're looking at forwards. It looks just like some kind of like Arab window opening. But if he goes like that, it opens up like a fish god. All of that goes back to the Tower of Babel. Babylon. Satan transforms himself into an angel of light and his minister. Second Corinthians eleven thirteen. I hope you're putting on the armor. I hope you're doing good battle. Now notice Jesus knew they were holding fast to his name and not denying his faith in the midst of persecution. So if he's talking to the few that are being faithful in the midst of this corrupt church. Okay? 
The name Jesus implies again the God-man, deity, humanity. You cannot say you're a Christian if you don't believe Jesus is literal God and literal man. It's impossible. They still had a faith in the doctrine of Christ, notice, referring to all that he is and all that he has revealed himself to be in his word. Listen, the word of God is objective truth, not subjective. You're not at liberty to interpret any way you want the scriptures. They were not denying his name and faith in his name under the pressure of persecution. So that's why the commendation here. The name and faith go together. You can't separate them. What is believed about Jesus must be based on the scriptures, the revelation of God. Not tradition, not opinion, not subjective opinion. The Arian controversy was fought at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Denied the deity of Jesus Christ, that he was God. They said he was created at one time. That's the the false doctrine of Jehovah's Witness. Same thing. Now, here we begin to see the root of Roman Catholicism. A mixing of biblical truth with paganism and Thyatira will be its full development under syncretism. Syncretism is this. You call yourself a Christian or a Christian church and you allow all kinds of contrary teachings to the scriptures. You put them under and embrace them as tradition. They're okay. And you call them Christianity. I don't care what you call them. They're not Christianity. Antipas is an example notice of martyrdom under the system of Roman church here. As our Lord here identifies him as his own by the phrase, my faithful. His name is the diminutive of Antipater that means like the father. Faithful are those who confess Jesus and do not deny the faith. For them, the sword of judgment dispels all fear. But to the one who denies the faith, the sword should instill Fear. It is required that a steward be found faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2 So this was the commendation, the Pergamos, for the few. Notice, fourth, we have the condemnation now, 14 and 15. The church of Pergamos had those who held the doctrine of Balaam. Verse 14. The word but marks the sharp contrast between those who were commended, now those who are condemned. Okay? Jesus had a few things against them, and he is very specific about the activities. Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. He tells you exactly in specifics. Jesus charges them with compromise and altering or, or tolerating uh, sin. By being in fellowship with those who embraced the doctrine of Balaam in their practices. As you know, Balaam was a prophet of God. Numbers 22 to 25 tells us that. Who was called by King Balak to curse the children of Israel because they were walking through the land like, a, like an ox licking up the dust, conquering everything. So he freaked out. Uh, so he called Balaam and sent his advisors and everything to try to hire him. But Balaam refused the first time they came to him. And uh, the second time they came back with greater honors, greater reward. 
And and so he said, I can't go unless the Lord tells me. So he says, be here and tomorrow if the Lord tells me, I'll go with you. But in the morning we read that Balaam was gone already. So apparently the men came, Balaam then waited because the enticement of the greater reward caught him. And so he went with them. Next thing we see is Balaam was on his way and the angel of the Lord stood in the midst of the path. And as he's riding on his little donkey, the angel of the Lord is ready to wipe him out and the donkey sees him. So he goes off the road and he beats his donkey, gets him back on and so on and so forth. And finally the donkey sees he's going to get killed. So he smashes him up against the wall, crushes his leg. Balaam begins to beat his donkey. And the donkey turns around and says, hey, am I not the donkey you've had since I was young? Have I ever known to do something like this? Now, what shocks me is not that the donkey spoke. It's that Balaam talked back to the donkey. He said, I wish I had a sword. I'd kill you right here. And the Lord opened his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord. Okay, I'll go back. No, no, no. And so the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, says, go ahead. But you can say nothing except what I tell you. And so when he got there, as you know, Balaam took him to different sites and, and, and he wanted to curse him, but he ended up blessing him all the time. In fact, Balaam gave one of the most amazing prophecies about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Finally, the last, you know, Balaam just clapped his hands. He said, stop, stop. I called you to curse him and all you do is bless him. He says, well, God has blessed. I can't curse. Whoa. But in Numbers 25, 1 through 5, in 31.15, we read that Balaam advised Balak about a way to stumble the children of Israel. I can't curse them, but this is how they can mess themselves up. You take your young girls and you send them into the camp of the Israelis. And, 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 and let them invite them to come in one of their worship services of their pagan gods. So they can teach them how they worship sexually. You see, all the, all the majority of worships of the Old Testament of the pagans were, were, were sexual right worships. Today, it's, why it's alive in pornography here in the United States. They get a, they get a W-2 form. They get, they get to claim taxes. They get to, to claim deductions. Everything. Uh, the government ran the Mustang uh, ranch out in uh, Nevada. For years, uh, as a, as, as, as a, um, a prostitution house, and the government ran it when they confiscated. Amazing. And so they did, as you know. And as as Moses was there with Joshua and Phineas, and this young Hebrew guy has walks right in front of them, between them, with a sweet wiggly thing. They go into a tent and they go at it. And Phineas was so outraged, he grabbed his lance, his javelin, and thrust them both through. And God blessed Phineas because of his zealousness for God. But notice, by eating things sacrificed to idol in verse 14 and committing sexual immorality, they both go together. You start eating of the world's table. Pretty soon you'll be in the bed of the world. You know that, you've been there. We're not speaking because we're self-righteous. We're speaking because we were there. And so, Peter says that those who follow the way of Balaam have forsaken the right way because they have loved the wages of unrighteousness. Jude warns of the heir of Balaam that is for profit 
And he uses it as a strong warning from the Old Testament. Second Peter 2.15 and Jude is only one chapter, verse 11. But you have the warning all throughout Deuteronomy 23.4, Joshua 13.22 and many, many others. Paul encountered the same problem at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 7, chapter 9. The young man was sleeping with his stepmother. Downright right sin. But then also the Corinthians were involved in eating of meats and fornication with the idol temples of before. Paul says, what are you doing? Some of you come to church and you slept with your girlfriend last night. Some of you perhaps are in an adulterous relationship and you still come to church. Now I'm glad you're here. But I hope you hear the last line, repent. This principle is applicable to us today, even though the literal practice may not be. We can compromise with spiritual truth in many different ways. The believer is not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers in boyfriend or girlfriend or job relationships. but of different lifestyles. If you are uh, dating a boy or a girl who is a non-believer, I rebuke you. You need to repent and break it off. If you're engaged, you need to break that off. And very rare will that happen. There's a young lady that usually sits here in front. She's not here today, so I'll freely speak. And she was a non-believer, ready to get married. And she became a Christian. What did she do? She broke it off. Wow, how rare that is today. May God multiply her number. You're in business with a partner that's a non-believer. You're going to eat it big time. Because they're not going to obey the laws and the rules. And the more government tries to pressure you, the more they're going to want to be dishonest. And then you are brought into that. Now, if you're a Christian businessman, you can hire all the non-believers you want to be an example and to show them what it is to be a godly man. But you don't go into partnership with non-believers. You're being unequally yoked. It's straight across the board, ladies and gentlemen. So the test is in your obedience, not just coming to church. The worship of idols is still a practice of our day. And the scriptures are clear that the worship of idols is demons. Deuteronomy 32, 17, 1 Corinthians 10, 20. Behind idols are demons. Whenever there is an unequal yoke, there's compromise tolerance. And there will be a mixture of truth and error. The believers told, love not the world, neither the things are in the world. Love of the world, uh, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. First John 2, 15 through 16. At the state of our, uh, the start of our study, we said that Pergamos means height or elevation. Through her marriage to the world, she is elevated here. It is interesting that it is the same root from which we get our word bigamy and polygamy. Same root. It's a compromise. Now the church of Pergamos had those who held the doctrine of Nicolaitan. Notice verse 15. The word again is made up of two words. Neko, which means to conquer and allows the people. It's a, a conquering of the people. We saw it in the church of Ephesus. Um, hierarchy, trying to control people. This is what people love to do. I want to point you to Jesus. I have enough trouble with my own life. I don't need yours. Okay? 
I'm not going to run your life. You're responsible for your life as you read the word of God, as you go to God, to make decisions in your marriage, to make decisions for your children in life. It's a hierarchy such as priests, cardinals, bishops, popes, but also in the Protestant way, they're shepherding pastors and elders that want to control people. And you can't make decisions as I tell you what you should do, and you know, I tell you what you buy, who you marry. God, shut up. It's, it's incredible. I, I'm amazed what people subject themselves to. The Lord Jesus commended the church of Ephesus because they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which God hates. Now, they have established their doctrine within the church. Drinking had never been an issue since, since I got born again. You're a Christian, you didn't drink. Now, with the emergent church, it is a problem because they drink. We see the progression here. It's embraced completely. Why would you want to drink? Didn't you destroy your life enough in the world like that? Now you want to let your children drink? We are brain dead. Wow. The church of Pergamos occupies a period of 312 to 600 A.D. This is the start of the Roman Catholic Church. Constantine married the church of the world, making her a state church. Everybody is commanded to be a Christian. You can't command people to be Christians. You kill it. Heathen basilicas and temples were turned into Christian churches. Um, soon, you couldn't tell the difference. Um, they chiseled off the names of the old gods and put there St. Peter, St. Paul. Interesting. Constantine had regiment of soldiers baptized as all witnesses. All at once. He makes anything and everything into the Christian religion, the Christian doctrine, into Christianity. Constantine's mother, Elena, when she went around Jerusalem and wherever she got some kind of vibe, she said, this is the location where Jesus was, this and that. So the Catholic Church puts different monuments at different places. We don't go there when we go to Israel. Okay, uh, We go to the locations and all that. Um, they're the false places. But let me give you some decrees that were issued during the 300-year period of the church history. Uh, they're illuminating because this is the, the, the beginning of full-blown um, Catholicism. Three to 600. Listen carefully. 300 A.D., prayer for the dead. 300 A.D., making signs of the cross. 375 A.D., the worship of saints and angels. 394 A.D., mass first instituted. 431 A.D., worship of Mary began. 500 A.D., priests began to dress different. Prior to that, they were just like normal people. 526 A.D., um, extreme unction, meaning the priest only has the anointing to teach the word of God. You, you're just a peon. You don't have anything. Uh, 593 A.D., the doctrine of purgatory and was introduced. Now, if you don't remember, if you know history, Tessel is a big rat that put this doctrine together. They need to get money to build their basilicas and, and their cathedrals. So they devise a, a, a doctrine that if you will give the minute a coin hits the bottom of the coffer, your loved one is released from purgatory. Indulgences and everything else. Blasphemous. Evil liars. 
That's a new word that we haven't heard. Liar. <laughs> kind of sounds good to my ears. 600 AD, worship services in sta- conducted in Latin. Oh, how, how smart that is. You know, we're going to speak over the pulpit so you can't understand this. Great. That's good. 600 AD, prayer directed to Mary. Had the church resisted and not compromised, the dark ages could have been averted, perhaps. The parable of the mustard seed that grew abnormally with the large birds comes to pass real quickly in the church age, doesn't it? Big buzzards. And the Protestant church is no different. Today there are huge churches and you've got big, fat buzzard leaders. Do you read the Word of God? Or, or do you just read the Word of God? Their sin was toleration and compromise, mixing truth with error. This was a condemnation to Pergamos. Now look at 16. You have the exhortation. The church has given biblical counsel to get back on track. Ready for it? They were two, one word, repent. Never changed, has it? Repent. The word repent means to change your mind about God and what you're doing, how you're living, just as it was for Ephesus in 2.5. The act of repenting has certain characteristics as we've seen. Uh, you acknowledge your sin, you confess your sin, you abandon your sin, and if possible, make restitutions, but it's not always possible, it's not always wise to do so. Okay? But those are the characteristics of repentance. Without that, you have not turned from darkness to light. The church is warned, notice, about the consequence if they do not obey the counsel. There is a responsibility to hearing, the warning, the instruction. The Lord would come to them quickly and would fight against them. Notice that, the unfaithful with the sword of of his mouth. Chapter 19, he comes back with the sword of his mouth. The sword is once again the large sword for judgment. The church of Ephesus would merely be remove her lampstand from its place if she did not repent. The church of Pergamos, Jesus says that unless she repent, then he will fight against her and judge her. Judgment begins at the house of the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, notice that he says he will come quickly to fight against those who hold these two doctrines. First Peter four seventeen. Judgment begins with us, the house of God. And um, Revelation 1.16 makes it clear. Revelation 19.15 gives us the fulfillment, the second coming. Now, notice the warning. To repent is the way of averting judgment. And the consequence is a promise of judgment. The word quickly means suddenly. Speedily. The word is used for the Lord's sudden appearance and judgment Throughout the book of Revelation, 12, and 20. What is it that we don't understand about God coming back in judgment? Tolerance of evil and compromise in the church is not being graceful. It's being sinful. When you try to be more graceful to your children or to anybody else or yourself than God, then you've put yourself in the place of God. The city of Pergamos was under Roman rule. The sword was very relevant to her. 
Roman governors divided into two classes, those that they had the eus gladi, the right of the sword, to take life and to spare it, and those who did not. The Lord was the true ruler over every empire in application here. He had the absolute right to exercise judgment and to take life without any danger of making any error. He knows the heart of every person. Caesar worship demanded confession to extremes of death. It began with Augustus when he allowed the worship of Julius Caesar and of himself, but only of non-citizens, and he died in 14 AD. Culminated this with Domitian in 81 to 96 AD, which was about the time of the writing of the book of Revelation. Domitian was the first to take this his divinity seriously and um, demanded Caesar worship. Titus persecuted all who opposed, especially against the Jews and Christians, because prior to this, the Jews were exempt from burning a pinch of incense to Caesar. So they had it made. So that's why the Jews could persecute the Christians because they weren't being persecuted by Rome. But at this point, you know, it's, it's come home to bite them now. This was the exhortation to Pergamos. God's always reaching out to exhort you, exhort me to turn, to get right, to stay right. He doesn't want to judge. Seven, six here, verse 17, comes application, which again is the most important here for us today. We make sure we, there must be application. The declaration is an invitation for anyone. Notice, there must be a willingness to listen if you find yourself in such a church condition or the condition of an individual as a Pergamos. If this identifies you, then you need to pay attention. There is a sense of responsibility and accountability at your hearing. There is culpability for every person who does not listen and take the way of repentance. Jesus' famous words, he was not near, let him hear. Here is the Spirit, says to the churches, the representative of Jesus. Jesus said, take heed what you hear and how you hear. Notice the declaration is an invitation to obey what the Spirit says to the churches. The word hiraku again refers to the faculty of hearing, not being deaf. The idea is that of hearing with keen, sensitive endowment to obey. Literally, let him accurately and effectively hear. The obedience is not limited to the message to the church of Pergamos, but to the all seven messages, as we have pointed out in the first two. The word church is again is in the plural, like in the others, and the spirit is the speaker in the person of Jesus Christ, the comforter, the one to come alongside and to represent Jesus Christ. Notice here the declaration towards the end of 17 is the invitation with promise of reward. The one to receive the reward, one word, overcomer. It is the timeless promise, the one who abides in Christ Jesus, who is an overcomer. First John um, tells us that, but first uh, John 15, 1 through 6, abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. My father is the vine, um, the husband, I am the vine. And he says, and then the, well, I'll cut those branches and cast them apart. And then he says, and I'll 
Cut that person out, doesn't abide and cast them apart. He goes from the branches to an individual. Jesus says that, okay? So he's not contradicting himself. Our faith is what overcomes the world. First John 5, 4 through 5. Our faith that's lived down in obedience to objective truth. The person who will, reward, who will um, be rewarded once again is the individual. But who's the one rewarding? Jesus Christ. I. He's the one that rewards. The Lord will give to some a hidden manna, um, the hidden manna to eat here. Notice some. Underline word some. Some will repent in this church system and not be one with their abominations of practices. The hidden manna is in contrast to eating the things offered to idols with Balaam. Verse 13. You can eat with the Lord and what the Lord gives you or what the world offers you. God gave man in the wilderness, as you know, until the day they came to the promised land. Exodus 16, 33 and 34. Hebrews 9, 4 tells us that. And each person had to go out, as you know, and collect a certain amount of manna each day. The sixth day, they were to grab twice as much so they wouldn't have to go out on the Sabbath day to collect. But as you know, the people grabbed some more and it turned into worms and they would go out again and Moses rebukes them. We, we, you know, we're no different. Today's the same thing. It's the same, we just don't like to obey God's word. We just somehow think that, you know, we're the exception and, you know, God's a little out of date. The lesson is that we are to depend on the Lord daily for our bread and our daily time spending with him every day. Now notice God command that, commands here Moses to place a pot of manna, or not here, but he commanded him in the Old Testament, and he placed a pot of manna in the Ark of the Covenant as well as the table of stones of the Ten Commandments. By the time Solomon um, got the ark, all that was left was the two tables of stone, the rod of Aaron, and, and, and the manna was gone already. Somebody ripped them off. Um, the psalmist says that manna was grain or bread from heaven, angels' food in Psalm 78, 24 through 25. Jesus is the bread from heaven that's come down, John chapter 6. He is the bread of life. Now notice... The Lord will give to some a white stone also. The high priest used to know the mind of God through the Urim and the Thummim, if you remember. And we don't know what exactly it was, but he had it in the pouch in the middle of his ephod. Some believe it was a black stone and a white stone. We're not sure, just speculation. But it is interesting that law courts used to use stones to reveal the judgment of man. A black stone he would be condemned and a white stone he would be acquitted. So there's, there's relative uh, association here to what he's saying for that day. It was used also for an invitation to a banquet. Um, and the stone uh, will have a new name on it uh, in, ancient, in the ancient world. Uh, it was used as an object. It was an object of wood, metal, or stone. And it was called tesera, which was written on it. And it conferred the privilege or the favor for whatever it was that was going on, whether it be for food or, or for being a victor at a game or for a gladiator who survived and retired and was given the tesera, indicating he was a proven man of valor. And what a great parallel to the believer who's an overcomer in such a church as they repent, as they remain faithful. It's very relevant here. The word new there is kinos. It doesn't refer to new in time, 
merely, but new in quality, replacing the old relationship um, now from being unfaithful to being faithful, from being disobedient to being obedient, from being worldly to being heavenly, spiritual. The color white speaks of righteousness of God, the holiness of God, heaven, newness. The name will be known only to the one who receives the notice. God always likes to change names. Abram, Abraham, Sarai, Sarah, Jacob, Israel, Saul, Paul. <laughs> Changes names. If a boy, and today I'm sure they don't do this anymore, but they use that paper routes. A boy gets up at 6 o'clock in the morning to uh, deliver his papers. People call, used to call him a go-getter. If the church were to ask him where he goes to arrive at 6 in the morning to do some work for the Lord, they would say that that's, uh, that's expecting too much of the boy. If a woman spends eight hours uh, away from her home in a factory or an office, she's called a helpful, energetic wife. But if, however, she is willing to do the same things for the Lord, people say religion has gotten, uh, gone to her head. If you are tolerant of homosexual lifestyle or that having sex is natural, you're declared to be loving, a liberated, progressive person. But if you declare these to be unnatural, immoral, and contrary to God's word, you're called a bigot, unloving, narrow-minded, self-righteous, homophobic. If one ties himself down making payments of whatever amount for whatever reason and much of it your own uh, um, decision to have pleasure, a boat, whatever it is. And, they, you know, people say, boy, he's just committed, you know, he's responsible. But um, if, um, if you are consistent to give to God what belongs to God, uh, people say, you're crazy. Do you realize the upside down world we live in? Do you see the contrast? A crazy world indeed, but the problem is that this is the mindset of so many people, and maybe some of you today in the church, where first things are last and last things are first, and um, have become worldly, and many churches have done the same, marrying the world and the thinking of the worldly aspect. Um, Do you want to be exalted and elevated? then let God do it through your obedience, not through marrying the world and tolerating compromise and sin. Remember, if your lifestyle is worldly, you're deceiving yourself, and you will fall under the judgment of God, as I would if I compromise God's word as a matter of lifestyle. Repent. From your toleration, your compromise. Receive the word of warning and promise. That's the clear message. This was the application to Pergamos. It still is today to those who are such a church and such a Christian. The message to the church of Pergamos is to not become worldly, tolerating sin in their life the life of others, 
compromising the word of God. The message speaks to a local church and about a local church in John's day. The message speaks of a period of history, 313 to 600 AD. The message speaks of a type of church that will and can exist from Pentecost to the rapture. And the message speaks of a type of Christian in every kind of church. Now you you get to take the test. You get to correct your own paper. You get to know where you're at. If you're here, only one word for you. Repent. God loves you. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for this morning. We pray, Lord, you continue to deal with our hearts. And we thank you for just your word that draws us to you, Lord, and allows us to see how gracious and loving and kind you are. As you're praying, if you're here this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then know that God loves you. First of all, he wants you to know that his wrath is upon you because you're a sinner. No one is exempt from this. We all fall short of the glory of God. But if you believe that Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, then the Bible says you can call upon him and be saved. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. So if you're over the internet or here, if you don't know Christ, then we invite you to repent of your sins. And then others of you are here, maybe you find yourself, you're a Pergamum. You're compromising. You're, you're living with the system of the world or you still come. Then you need to repent. So whichever one you fall into, here's your prayer of repentance. Get back to God or come to God, either one. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.